expressed on this broadcast of the Take 12 Recovery Radio Show are those of the co-host and guest and do not necessarily reflect those of our affiliates. The topics and opinions on today's show should not be considered as medical, psychological, or professional advice. Take 12 Radio is not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. And now, here's your host, the man, the myth, the legend, the Monty Man. Well, greetings one and all. This is the Monty Man here at Take 12 Recovery Radio. And usually on the third Monday of the month, we broadcast Entitled to Overcome with Mr. Dave Fleming. Dave is not available this week, so I thought this would be a perfect time uh, to celebrate the life of my friend and a former guest here on the show, Mr. Peter Torkelson. Some of you probably know him better as Peter Tork. Now, Peter Tork was an American musician, composer, and actor, best known as the keyboardist and bass guitarist of the Monkees. He grew up in Connecticut and in the mid-60s was part of the Greenwich Village folk scene and as an accomplished musician befriended Mr. Stephen Stills. Well, after moving to Los Angeles with Stills, he was recruited for the comedic and manufactured band the Monkees, and became a teenage idol between 1966 and 68. Peter recorded his debut solo album, Stranger Things Have Happened, in 1994 and later toured with his blues band, Shoe Suede Blues. Unfortunately, and very sadly, we lost Peter. Uh, he passed away at age 77 on February 21st, 2019, this year. And he passed away at his home in Connecticut. Well, what you're about to hear is an interview that I did with Peter Tork. Um, I believe it was on April 15th of 2008. And I thought just in honor of, of the man, the musician, and the actor, uh, we would go ahead and play this excerpt from that interview so you can learn a little bit more about our friend, Mr. Peter Tork. So without further ado... Here is that interview. What was your what was your history like, man? As far as your recovery goes, I mean, obviously things weren't always going good for you, right? The real question to me lately has been, what is it about being a, an alcoholic that sends you into entertainment in the first place? 
Mm. Uh, you know, uh, people used to ask me a lot, uh, so uh, did the entertainment industry drive you to drink? <laughs> <laughs> Which reminds me of the W.C. Fields joke. You know the old joke? Well, the woman drove me to drink. Never properly thanked her for that. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, did did entertainment industry drive me to drink? No, of course not. Yeah. It drove me to the entertainment or not drink because really the the kinds of personality trends that sent me to entertainment were there long before uh, I got into any trouble with any chemistry whatsoever. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, I was I never was a time I couldn't drink. My parents. Uh, let me drink wine if I wanted with dinner or, or a sip of the cocktails or a bit of beer. Nobody, they never cared. And, uh, and, and I never, you know, I never uh, got uh, too deeply into it in, in, when I was young. Uh, but uh, it's pretty, pretty clear that everybody's, uh, that alcoholics have a, uh, have a curve to their disease, to their, their syndrome that is, uh, that is basically uh, uh, not affected by, by life or by anything else. It's just, it's genetic. It's in their, it's in their bones. Mm -hmm. And I guess my curve hadn't taken over me. It didn't, uh, I didn't even notice I was in trouble until my late, into my mid to late thirties. Uh, one or two friends of mine knew I was in trouble before that, but uh, not many. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you have a history, uh, genetic history or anything in your family? Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Although it's hard to pin. My father died uh, at 86, and you don't, you know, it's hard to say, you know, that he, that he died of alcoholism because alcoholics at best die in their 60s, or early 60s usually, you know. Most, mm -hmm. most alcoholics who can survive as, you know, who don't die of anything else, who just die of the, of the organic uh, damage alcohol does to them, die in their 60s. So it's hard to say, you know, but uh, I think the best, uh, uh, the best uh, teller of, uh, of, of the disease, well, there's two good, two good tells, I think. One of them is, do you drink when it's against your better interest to do so? Yeah. Uh, and when the information is there that lets you know that it's against you. And the other is personality changes, you know, and I used to see my father with personality changes. Uh, my mom drank like a fish, but she may not have been an alcoholic. It's hard to know. Uh, but uh, almost certainly my father was, uh, and that's the only genetic uh, information I have. I don't know, you know. Uh, yeah. I'm inclined to believe it's genetic, but uh, mm -hmm. but there's enough exceptions to make you wonder. Where do sure. the alcoholics who who have no genetic history, where do they come from? Right, right. And per perhaps that's uh, developed through abuse. Who knows? Could uh, be. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though. I think that alcoholics and, uh, and everybody else who is, uh, you know, uh, uh, compulsive overeaters and drug mm -hmm. addicts and workaholics and I've got a brother who's a workaholic. You can't tell him. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah. every, everybody else. I think that that we're all uh, a mutant. I think we're all mutants. Uh, and that uh, and here's an interesting thought I have. No, I haven't heard anybody else say that. Those of us who are on this side of that line, uh -huh. who who belong or need to or should be getting into recovery, those of us who are on this side of the line cannot form relationships with those on the other side of the line. We don't even see them. We don't mm. even see them. Everybody, on, and that means Al-Anons, too. Al-Anons are on this side of the line. Right. Oh, alcoholics, Al-Anons find alcoholics, vice versa. The normal people take one look at an alcoholic and say, no thanks. <laughs> 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 you know, it's only the Al-Anons who go, I can fix this man. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and the the co-addict, you know, uh, you take their drug away, the person, yeah. you know, what's that look like, you know? <laughs> I don't, you know, I think they, yeah, they're going to withdrawals. You know what they say about 
uh, Al Anons. When some when they die, somebody else's life flashes before their eyes. <laughs> I'm writing that down. Sounds like a good bumper sticker for an AA convention. I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did, did anybody approach yeah. you and say, say, uh, Peter, man, what are you doing? Nope. Nope, 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 nope. Wow. Uh, because I never, because my, listen, uh, I have a very, um, I have a very high bottom story, really. Uh-huh. Uh, I, uh, you know, I would, uh, I would get drunk and, and behave badly uh, one night, and it wouldn't happen again for months and months and months. And everybody thought, oh, well, Peter's just, you know, he's just had a few too many. And it didn't happen all the time. And, you know, uh, and like the man says, you know, uh, I didn't uh, I didn't get into trouble every time I picked up a drink. Right. Every time I got into trouble, I'd been drinking. Right. Exactly. And uh, but if you're if your bouts of, of trouble are months and months apart, as they were with me, nobody notices mm. that the, the pattern until you come back and say, I'm not drinking anymore. And they go, oh, well, that explains such and such. You know, a lot of your friends. A lot of my friends who weren't drinking uh, uh, noticed sort of more in hindsight. Oh, yeah, I saw, now that you tell me this, now that makes more sense than it did before some event in their, in their memory suddenly makes more sense. And that kind of thing, you know. But no, and so nobody said to me, Peter, you know, you're, you're, playing, uh, you're playing in traffic and you're going to get hit. Yeah, yeah. You know, I find, I find it interesting, and it is so true, uh, that uh, the literature, our recovery literature, particularly in the mainstream, or the mother program, I call the mothership, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous in the, in the big book, it talks about, uh, really, in every other area, how the alcoholic, and I would say this for the, for the narcotic addict as well, as well as these other compulsions and so forth, uh, how talented we are and how, how well organized we are when it comes to our jobs and, and how functional we are in every other area. Now, y- you play all sorts of instruments. And w- when I got down to, to a banjo and French horn, I thought, French horn? Yep. Uh, which one of these instruments out of the ones that I named did you start with? Piano. Piano. Sure. Yeah. I took piano uh, for uh, five or six years. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, and then studied uh, theory in college and uh, French horn in high school and college later on. Guitar came next, uh, and the five-string banjo came after that. Uh, and I've sort of, uh, if you play guitar, and if you play, particularly if you play uh, 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 Travis, Travis Picking, uh-huh. uh, you're used to playing bass parts with your thumb. And the the bass strings of a guitar are the same as the bottom four strings. I mean, the bass strings, the strings on the bass are the same as the bottom four strings on the guitar. On the guitar, right. So you, if you play guitar and you pay attention to your bass notes, you can play bass. Mm-hmm. So I just picked up the bass. That was handy. There's nothing to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, and I've enjoyed playing bass uh, down through the years. Uh, and then the French horn came in high school and college, uh, and it was something to do for a difference. But I'll tell you something. Uh, in my view... Uh, one of the things about my uh, being an alcoholic is that it did uh, keep me from applying the kind of concentration that let me be uh, as good a musician as I want to be. In other words, it's like every so often I would pick up a new instrument. And uh, so if I could only play many fewer instruments and play them all commensurately better, I think I'd be a happier musician today. Mm. Mm. Do, do you still uh, go after a new instrument now and then? Well, I did pick up the trumpet the other day. You did? <laughs> See what would happen, yeah. Of course, uh, 
there's a lot it has that now shares a certain amount of uh, technique and uh, musicality with the French horn. They're both brass and they have the same uh, style of fingering, the same three valves essentially. Um, and uh, so there was uh, the learning curve was a little shorter on that one, uh, but I sure did learn how big the learning curve is. And I just wanted to play this one tune on trumpet, and I recorded it. And you can hear that it's like a very early trumpet player. But and so I put it back down because, like I said, I, I really would rather concentrate on the things I can do somewhat well, rather than waste time doing things I can't do at all well. So I'm I'm beginning to learn a little bit. Peter Peter White Blues. Ah. Uh, well, why not? Why not? <laughs> uh, the blues, uh, there's something about blues notes, about uh, the blues beat, uh, about the uh, the sensibility of the blues. Uh, all of those things have always gone really deep for me, deeply into my core someplace. I will tell you, I've worked on this, the question for myself uh, down through the, uh, through the few of the last years, and it's come down to this for me. Pop music is a distraction. Uh, pop music is usually about taking your mind off your troubles, uh, particularly dance music nowadays. Uh, disco music and uh, discotheque music is really about pounding. It's like the, the old joke about if I stomp on your foot, you forget that your finger hurts. You know? Right, sure. And, uh, and it's something like that, I think. Uh, but the blues is, is, is genuinely healing because... Uh, and it works into the issues of recovery and uh, uh, and the, the the disease of alcoholism and all the diseases are diseases of isolation. And uh, we you go into the disco uh, or you drink and or both, and uh, that for a while successfully removes the insistence of the information that you're all alone. Mm-hmm. But the with the blues in hand. You simply are not all alone. Yeah. You actually are in company. You're the same as everybody else. Everybody goes through that. Everybody's had the blues. It really is uh, like the white man's disease. I don't have the blues. I'm fine. I can take care of myself. <laughs> yeah. That kind of that kind of frontier uh, isolationist individualist attitude, which is incidentally, in my opinion, bringing our country to rack and ruin. But that's an outside issue, which I will not pursue any longer. <laughs> Point being, however, that the blues tells me. Yeah. That uh, that the fact that I'm sometimes out of whack and sometimes uh, lost and feeling a little bit alone that doesn't make me unique and expellable. You know what I mean? Yeah. It to be if you're if you're feeling lonely or down. Oh, what are you talking about? You got no reason. Have a drink. You should feel great. No, sure. A lot. You know. Yeah. And the, which is essentially rejection and and the rejection of your truth. And the blues tells you, no man. Everybody's been there. It doesn't say don't have a drink, but you don't have to go, like, you don't have to that pull that, uh, I'm a man, I can take care of myself stuff. Yeah. You can just say, listen, I'm feeling down. You know, right, man, I get it. People are feeling down. It's, it's not a happy place to be, is it? No, it isn't. I've sure. been there, man. I get it. Yeah. When you sit down to, 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 to write, for instance, do you ever write with the other members of the band? Uh, I have I had hopes of doing it, but the only other guy that uh, in the band that I wrote with has uh, just uh, he's just passed away. So mm -hmm. that's out of the question from yeah. now on. Although I'm not sure that it was ever in the question, but I always had hopes while he was around. Uh, I'm talking about, of course, my uh, my my the guitar player the uh, in the band Richard Michaels. Mm -hmm. 
Richard was, uh, uh, I felt, very much a, a co-equal partner. He was uh, uh, an abstinent alcoholic himself, uh-huh. um, and uh, um, and so there was a uh, there was a great deal of camaraderie and a sense of shared history there. Um, but uh, now that he's gone, I have no sense of of, uh, of musical uh, communion with the with the other members of the band. Not yet. It might still happen. Yeah. The drummer is a fellow that I knew from a way way back who wrote a really good song when I was much younger, and maybe he's interested in writing. And I'll, we'll see what happens there. Yeah. Uh, the guitar player and the bass player are not songwriters, as far as I can tell. Okay. Let's listen to this song. I know love. You want to tell us about it? Well, it's, uh, we I know I know love, but I don't know the song. Uh, that is to say, the guy who wrote it uh, was, um, ooh, gosh, I can't remember his name, but he was the guitar player in Sha Na Na, okay. the old uh, the doo-wop cover band of the 70s, sure. uh, had a TV show of their own, um, and uh, uh, and there was something about, the, and we tried it for a little while, and then it didn't seem to work, and then... Um, we uh, we changed the bass part and uh, suddenly it seemed to have a kick to it and then Richard and I sang uh, uh, duet just straight uh, vocal vocal doubles mm-hmm. and um, uh, and also the only this is the only song that Richard and I ever traded a guitar on usually I'd play a solo or two and he'd play a solo or two but on this one we we throw guitar phrases back and forth. So you'll hear uh, his guitar is the kind of smokier, darker, thicker, smoother tone. Mine's uh, a little bit sharper and brighter. So you hear these two guitars trading licks. That's uh, that's me and Richard playing guitar together. Um, and uh, 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 and, uh, and we traded, uh, I mean, you can't tell really, you come to think of it, there's some so there's some slide work, and we sort of slide in and out. You can't really tell who's doing what. But uh, it's it really was about the, uh, it seemed like a real collegial kind of thing. It's It was a partnership thing. And in a way, this is sort of like my, my recollection of, uh, of working with Richard. Yeah. So are you going to play that song like right now? Yes. Okie doke. Yes. Then, then, then hit it, Mr. Marley Man.
Because when I put this CD in, and well, first of all, when I saw the title of it, Last Train to Clarksville, uh, I had expectations, of course. Oh, this is going to bring back memories. But then I put it in, and it's a different version than what yes. many people are used to. Um, why? Well, because uh, because we, we uh, as a band, have uh, struggled uh, to... Uh, keep things as bluesy as possible. Yeah. And uh, plus, you know, my history, uh, there's, there's this conjunction, there's this area in between where uh, people come to see a show of mine. And uh, and I'll tell you, if I, I went to see a Paul McCartney show once and he didn't do any Beatles songs and I was, uh, and I was uh, bored and <laughs> disappointed. And I took a lesson from that. And uh, um, while uh, because of the nature of the beast, I, I don't have... Uh, anything like the same connection with uh, with most of the monkey songs as McCartney would with Beatles songs, for instance. But still, uh, the lesson I took was you can't go to, or the, or the, you know, where I went with it was you can't go to see a Peter Tork show without wanting to hear a few monkey songs. And, uh, and I'm delighted to do it. I'm glad to say that the monkeys, uh, much of the monkeys' music was derived, uh, was blues influenced and blues derived. Neil Diamond, for instance, writes a very bluesy song. Uh, he writes it over and over again, but it's a mm-hmm. very bluesy song that he writes, generally. So I didn't touch uh, most of those things. We did shift one song from a straight beat to a shuffle beat. Um, and uh, but Clarksville was in some ways the least of the the least purely bluesy song of the entire Monkees <clears throat> uh, songbook. And um, so we, um, I, I just was playing around with it one day and came up with this ex- this different beat. And I thought this is this is good. This is pretty sly. Uh, and um, uh, the original arrangement is the right arrangement for the for the pop single. Right. A friend, a friend of mine who was with me uh, back then and and heard the song recently says he thinks this is the better version. And I'm inclined to agree. But I also realize as I'm sitting here on the phone with you that given the demands of pop music at its time, the original version is the more appropriate version for a pop record yeah but for us for me for now this version seems to say more of what i think the record the, the lyrics seem to say because there's this one very uh, fetching and and, and uh, sort of foreboding line i don't know if i'm ever coming home now that line of course can be just interpreted like you know well uh, honey child, we're going to have one kiss and then I'm back on the road because I'm a rambling kind of guy. Mm-hmm. But there was this hint uh, that the song was written about uh, a, a soldier's uh, departure for boot camp. Uh, and oh, really? uh, who knew whether he wasn't going to get shipped off and uh, meet his uh, his fate yeah. uh, in a sandstorm someplace. Not when it was written. could have would have been the, the jungles of Vietnam back then. But... Um, 
but uh, who knew, you know, so there's this foreboding. And I think that the, uh, uh, the, the new version uh, relates to that better. Um, and uh, so we're kind of pleased with it. It's, it's pretty slinky. Uh, you going to play that now? Yes, sir. Okay, cool. Play the doggone record, Mr. Martin. <laughs> All right, here's Last Train to Clarksville. in i listened to it and, and like i said i had expectations and so because i was expecting that that fast thing you know and and i went huh and i had to think about it for a minute and then i played it again and you're right uh you know it it has a deeper meaning i it, it made me think and of course i had no idea about going off to war um I, you know, it's only a, we don't know for sure. It's, a, yeah, it's yeah. only a rumor. But there was some indication along those lines. Right, right. But enjoyed it, enjoyed it very, very much as I do all the songs that, that you have on, on your CD. On the back of the CD, it says, All men 
should strive to learn before they die what they are running from and to and why. And uh, written by James Thurber. And uh, any particular reason why this is on your CD? Does it mean something special to you? Well, it, it's actually uh, on the wall of uh, the of the uh, recording session, um, a recording studio that we worked at in Cambria, California, where we recorded the the CD. Hence, the name of the CD. Uh, it, uh, um, Lord, the name of this, the name of the recording studio is, is eluding me at the moment. It's probably on the CD. You'll tell them when you. And I don't have a copy in front of me at the moment, but uh, the the um, the whole thing, the way we worked it was we did all our basic tracking in this one studio. It's a lovely arrangement. Uh, our then drummer John Palmer came up with the uh, with the deal. We went in there for three days, recorded all our basic tracks for two and a half days, and then on the evening of the third day, we uh, broke down the studio and reconfigured it as a performance place and played for a, a house full of people in Cambria and basically paid for the recording session that way. Wow. It, was a, it was a sweet trade, uh, and we walked out of there with, uh, with all the masters on, on, uh, on digital hard drive, you know. Right. You have your, used to be, how much did, a, how much did a, a, an album in its uh, raw <laughs> multi-track form weigh? It, it, was a, it was a box of 32-track tape or something like that. Yeah. Only one. <laughs> and, uh, and they were huge. And now that whole thing is on a, on a hard drive about the size of a paperback book. Uh, and uh, we took it and we got we made copy a copy of it, and uh, Richard and I worked on it separately uh, in our respective home studios. Uh, and uh, because the wonderful thing about one of the wonderful things about modern technology is that since each of us had the audio tracks, we could uh, make uh, edits and arrangements in the songs and then send them back and forth to each other via email. And they were very small files because we didn't send the actual audio. Audio takes five megs a minute per channel, you know, mm. TV quality audio. And that's a pretty fair hunk of uh, transmission uh, digitally through the Internet. So, but, but a song uh, which, uh, which only refers to the audio but does not actually carry it uh, can carry a, a five-minute song for well under a meg. And uh, uh, so Richard had the audio in his place, and I had the audio at my place. So we could send the songs just like that, and we could practically chat and make uh, trade arrangement ideas over the phone while we were sending them to each other. No, how about a little bit more of this? Oh, yeah, okay, I see what you mean. And then we did visit each other and uh, did a few odd overdubs, and we did our vocals at Richard's, uh, those for the that we did back for uh, uh, I Know Love. We did those together at... Uh, uh, at Richard's house, and we did some of the banjo work here at my house, and uh, like that. So uh, the album was put together over the course of about a month after we did the basic recording. Uh, in the meantime, so we did the basic recording at, at the studio in Cambria, uh, California, and there on the wall was that quotation, all men must strive to learn before they die what they are running from and to and why. And I first of all thought that was really a, a fine thing to think about and to be good. And uh, the other thing is that I grew up uh, with, the, with the New Yorker life. My, my mom loved the New Yorker. My grandmother loved the New Yorker. I'm still a subscriber. And uh, James Thurber, of course, was iconic in the New Yorker world, the, the world of the early New Yorker, along with E.B. White and Harold Ross and uh, a few other spectacular writers, Dorothy Parker, 
who said of uh, was wrote early Catherine Hepburn's early plays. Dorothy Parker said Miss Hepburn runs the emotional gamut from A to B. Really, <laughs> <laughs> and was famous for that kind of sharp crack. And um, so there was that James Thurber thing, and uh, um, uh, and it, so all in all, it seemed like the ideal thing to put on the back of the CD. Yeah, that, great, great CD cover in back. Now the building you're standing in front of it was that the studio? Yes, that's the studio also. Yeah, and what you're looking at there is actually that's a composite uh, photo. Um, we uh, I wasn't in the doorway when uh, when that shot was the original shot was taken, but we found another shot of me in the doorway and and, uh, and I I uh, photoshopped it in because uh, I'm, I'm you know, feeling pretty clever with my hands that way. <laughs> well, good job. And, you know, until you said something, I wouldn't have known at all. Yeah. yeah. Okay. One of the fans, it was a funny thing. One of the fans wrote, she wrote, uh, well, there's Peter looking in disapproval at, at AJ smoking. That's Arnold. Yeah. <laughs> Arnold's lighting a cigarette. He's sitting on the step lighting a cigarette. And she said, and he's looking down in disapproval at AJ smoking a cigarette. And, of course, I wasn't looking at AJ at all. Right. Or if he was, he might not have been smoking. Who knows? You know, it wasn't even the same photo, like I said. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, it's, it's funny that you say that because that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. He's huh? going down there going, I wonder if that's his last cigarette. I wonder if I ought to just grab it out of his mouth and put it out. <laughs> <laughs> I have this... well, AJ still smokes. There's nothing. And uh, I wish he wouldn't, of course, because yeah. I'm uh, concerned about his well-being. But Well, I get pretty bold about it, Peter. I, I have this reputation around my uh, around my home group. Um, don't when, 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 when the money man says, hey, can I have a cigarette? Do not give it to him because he will snap it in two. And, and 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 I get away with it, but I guess it's because it's been years of doing that, and it's kind of it's kind of funny. Yeah, I just hey, I just you know, I can't fix you, but maybe I can uh, you know add maybe thirty seconds. Kind of like life. Uh, that's kind of like the hiding or destroying the bottle. Too. It is, isn't it? Oh man, talk about co-addict. <laughs> Uh, trying to hold off the tide. Yeah, you know, the whole thing about recovery has uh, and uh, abstinence, alcoholic abstinence, for people who have the help it takes to uh, to abstain with uh, with uh, uh, the community and with uh, with a full heart, uh, is that we just acknowledge that uh, there's never going to be an end to booze, and you're not going to stop anybody. From that's right. Taking away their bottles, so. So why even bother? All you do is yeah. pick up a fuss, and that's probably not—it's definitely not what we're about. No. A fuss in anybody no. else's life. No, no, and it, it's become so kind stop of stop that snapping of cigarettes, will you, Marty? You yeah, just yeah. You're well, you know, it's take, you're just trying to take control, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. That's All right. right. No, it, it's become kind of a, a trademark, kind of a fun thing now, and other people, you know, say. All right, let's see if he can get away with grabbing the cigarette from so and so, you know. But you know, you know what? It's really kind of unfair these days because those doggone things are expensive, man. Well, yeah, yeah. I can, it's not my concern. No, it's it, it, it's it's not. But it's it's kind of it's kind of fun. Uh, do you keep in contact with uh, any of the other guys from uh, the Monkees? Yeah, occasionally, a little bit here and there. Yeah. Uh, not Michael. Uh, Michael basically has uh, reneged on his word a couple times too many. Oh, that's uh, too bad. And uh, but the other two uh, and I have uh, have had occasion cross paths and uh, have a, a very a very cordial talk. You know, we have a hug and a and a few quick words depending on what kind of time we're spending together. Uh, I did a show, I saw a, sh- a show of Jonesies and joined him for a number, and afterwards we had a very cordial little chat for a bit uh, in his dressing room uh, after after the show. 
um, Nikki showed up at a thing we called a jam for Jerry, a, 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 a bass player uh, who worked behind the monkeys and behind uh, Mickey and Davey and I mm-hmm. all separately. Um, was uh, was taken from us, uh, and we had what we called a jam for Jerry, uh, and uh, Mickey was there, and Mickey and I did separate shows. We didn't go up on stage together, but uh, Mickey was very complimentary. I went up and did some blues numbers, and Mickey was very complimentary about that. He said, uh, oh, and by the way, do you want to start a group? So, <laughs> okay, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be here all, all right. <laughs> well, I, I, I just I'm just thinking here, you know, how many times have you been asked to uh, to start a group or, or be in one or, or you know since the not month. very often not very often yeah. no yeah. and it's funny because really being in a group uh, is uh, about the only thing I've ever uh, really uh, wanted to do the uh, one of the ma- I mean I've I've, always, I've wanted to do many many things in my life but the most consistent uh, and deepest desire has been to be part of a good musical group mm-hmm. D- do you sponsor anybody uh, Peter surely yeah. Yeah, how important is that to uh, for your recovery? Not very. Can Can you expound on that a little bit? Well, I don't. Uh, uh, I have been between sponsors myself for twenty some years. Yeah, uh, I don't know why. I don't recommend it, uh, and I don't quite get it. Uh, but um, uh, and but the, somebody and the, I had a few sponsors uh, in the early days of of. Uh, of my abstinence, uh, and they didn't stick, and I don't know exactly why, and I haven't been able to do much uh, successful um, uh, work in the 12-stepping department. It's just a funny thing, a funny mm-hmm. thing about me. Um, you know, everybody's different. Mercifully, I don't have to accord with everybody else's idea of what the truth is, because sure. that would drive me right up the wall. <laughs> uh, but this uh, 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 this one guy is... Uh, um, asked me and uh, we're, we're working on the steps and uh, I mean it's good I'm not uh, you know uh, uh, it's uh, I'm not I'm not saying it's a negative thing at right. all but um, it's really part of the uh, for me it is uh, I'm doing it because it's incumbent upon me to do it and because I believe the people who say you have to give it away to keep it mm-hmm. uh, I don't have a sense of being much more sober because I'm dealing with this guy than I would if I weren't dealing with this guy, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what I mean by not very important. I don't have a feeling of, of a difference. Right, that if you're not sponsoring, you're going to go out and drink or something. That's right. So yeah. I don't have that feeling. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Since I have, you know, the years and years I did, I had neither sponsors nor sponsees. I do about, I go about, I think I go about the same process in a different way. Uh, there are a few people that I, uh, that I am uh, mentoring uh, on, on a broader scale, uh, and when uh, recovery issues come to, into play, of course, I, uh, I, you know, I talk about uh, abstinence and, and asking for help and, uh, you know, ask for help in the morning, say thank you at night, um, those kinds of things. But for me, um, here's something about uh, uh, that, I will, that I've been saying a lot, uh, and I'll, I'll throw it out there. Uh, for me, the business of not picking up a drink, the actual point of abstinence, it's kind of like the king in chess. Critical, but not a big deal. Hmm. If you play chess, you know that the king is not a terribly important mm-hmm. piece in terms of the power of, of, of the game. Right. You can move one square in any direction, that's it. Uh, the queen is, is the power piece on the metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. But so, uh, and in a way, the metaphor holds in that uh, the, 
the business of abstinence, the game is, I, I have no game if I'm not abstinent. The game is over. Yeah. If I'm, as far as I'm concerned, if I'm not abstinent. But abstinence is not the be-all and the end-all of my life. The point of my life is my life. Uh, the, uh, the, the program, as I understand it, is a bridge back to life. That's the name of the game. Mm -hmm. And so I stay abstinent in order to lead the life or to have a chance at the life I wanted. And so in the same sense, to me, the issues of sponsorship are about uh, what you might call uh, life training more than just directly uh, on the business of uh, doing step work or, 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 or the business of being abstinent per se. When you're in a meeting, and I, I have people ask me this actually quite often, they say, Monty, when you're talking to these folks, uh, people that were well-known maybe when they were younger and, and those that are still uh, playing in some venue of another, do they have to go to meetings that are kind of separate from everybody else? Or you know, how do they feel about it? I know in California they have uh, musicians' meetings where you go in and you can read poetry and you can play and, and that kind of thing, and then they have the meeting. But do, do you ever go to a meeting and somebody's kind of like, do I know that guy? You know, who is that? Do I talk to him? Do I ask him if he's Peter Tork? I mean, do you experience that at all? Well, um, for start, let's start with this, uh, Marty. As far as I'm concerned, when it says uh, anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films, mm -hmm. I kind of count the internet. Yes. So, um, what I have to say about that is that uh, when I'm with people that I rely upon to uh, help ground me and keep me uh, remembering my origins, yeah. uh, that seems to be the only thing that matters at the time. There are occasions when I've wandered in and people have uh, become... Uh, involved with my fame, but since uh, my primary purpose is to, uh, uh, you know, that my my starting point, my focal point, is about uh, uh, see the uh, the other thing is for me, of course, when it says anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our principles, that means to me that uh, that I uh, I live by the rules of of recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not out to uh, to be of help to. I'm not out to promote the recovery process. Right. Um, so I uh, I basically anybody comes up to me, I just basically say, well, let's make recovery the first uh, the first issue. And uh, after the meeting, if you want to bug me about some fan thing, yeah. I've got a couple <laughs> of minutes if you need to. But I don't. You know, I just try to keep the focus where. Yeah. Uh, that's well put. That's really well put. Uh, thank you, because uh, you know I ha I've had some people on the air that said they just they can't get away from some folks. Is uh, one guy actually had a guy that kind of follow him around the meetings? But hey, let me tell you a story. Yeah, go ahead. This is kind of cute. This is uh, in some ways apropos, in some ways not. Sure. I heard of a, of a very cute little girl who uh, was a friend of mine. Uh, and she lived up in the Bronx, and she used to go to a meeting down on the Lower East Side, and it took her three trains to get there. Wow. And th one day, she went down in the subway, and she noticed this guy following her down into the subway, and she got on the subway, and the guy got on the subway, and she got off the subway, and the guy got off the subway, she got on the second train, he got on the second train, got off the second train, and onto the third train, and off the third train, and up the stairs, and he followed her all the way. She got to the top of the stairs, and she turned around and said, I'm going to an AA meeting. Are you coming or what? 
<laughs> and he turned around and walked back down into the subway. That is a great story. Yeah. <laughs> me, you know, if you've got somebody who's hounding you for your recovery, you just say, look, I'm going to an AA meeting. Yeah. I'm coming or what? Yeah. If you're really interested, uh, see the thing about, so one of the things about celebrity, people who are not celebrities and who go in for celebrity people uh, are actually, uh, they've, they've had some part of themselves beaten out of them, and they think they've found it in the celebrity. Yeah. And it is the celebrity's, a recovering celebrity's job, it seems to me, is to help remind them that they, that they own what they think they see. Mm. And that means recovery, again, because in recovery, again and again and again, what we hear, and what, I mean, to me, the issue of recovery is again and again and again, it's an inside job. It's not about you. I didn't do you. I didn't make you. I didn't, I didn't become you. You're not all that I need. You are, I'm not going to say you're nothing, but right. you are not the me that I need to have. I can't get me out of you. Yeah, that's good. And, and uh, if I'm one-on-one with somebody who's getting excited, I mean, if I can talk to them, it's, it's true. They still get a little excited and you can't talk to them. But <laughs> to the extent that you can, that's what I tell people. You're, what you see is within you. Find, your, find it in yourself. It's in there. It's not out here. I am not it. And that's how he closed the interview. That's how we, we ended the interview back in 2008. What you see is within you. Look for it within you. Peter Tork is not it. And uh, when I was talking with him off the air, uh, he was very adamant about the fact that he wanted people to find who they were in themselves and not be starstruck and and look at him for for the answers uh, simply because he was a musician, a very popular musician who just happened to be in recovery as well, along with so many other people. Uh, the playing field was level as far as he was concerned, and he was no great person. He was just somebody else in recovery that needed us as much as we needed him. And I, I think uh, I think we can all respect that very, very much. So with that said, until our next broadcast, this is the Monty Man along with the Take 12 Recovery Radio family, and we are wishing God's perfect serenity for you. Bye-bye now. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting. She's a super cat, super cat, she's super kitty, meow. Yeah, kitty, 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 meow. <laughs> <laughs>